All right, you can be opening, please, to Revelation chapter 3. As I've said a few times before, we're taking our time going through the seven letters to the seven churches. But once we get into chapter 4 in a few weeks, uh, it's going to be kind of light speed. We're going to be taking chapters at a time to look at uh, what Jesus wants us to know. I, in, in preparation for this series, what I really came uh, to understand and to appreciate is one of the commentators that I read said, if Revelation is in the Bible, then God wants us to know it. He wants us to see the things that are happening in the heavenlies to be able to calm and settle our hearts to trust him more. And when I read that, I said, all right, this is not something, as a pastor, a preacher, I have been terrified to, to tackle this book. But that was helpful. It also was helpful that uh, I, the Lord just, I was like, oh, cool, God, you've led us well. Because all, a few different commentators said, you know, it's probably a good idea to study through Daniel and then Zechariah before you get to Revelation. I was like, ooh, we've done that. That's cool. Glad that happened that way. Uh, but this, I hope, has been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me in my preparation times, even in my preaching. I told a few of the guys uh, Wednesday morning at men's training that I've just been preaching to myself uh, during this series. And I'm glad you're all along for the ride because uh, I need these messages. And that's how I always, uh, really always want to preach. All right, we're going to look at uh, verses 7 through 13 in Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Holy Spirit, empower and illuminate the preaching of your word. You know, in this passage, we have a door that's opened to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus is saying. And it reminded me of a pastor in Cambridge, England, back in the 18, uh, 1700s, early 1800s, a man named Charles Simeon. He preached at the same church for 55 years, but it wasn't always glowing. When it was time for the church near Cambridge College to have a pastor, uh, the congregation wanted a particular man who was not Charles Simeon. But the rector over the area said, look, we're just going to put Charles there. He's going to pastor the church. church didn't like that. 
And every Sunday afternoon, they had a Sunday lecture that the, uh, the congregation could invite a guest lecturer. So this church began to invite the man that they wanted to be the pastor of the church to the Sunday afternoon lecture for 12 years. But yet Charles Simeon kept going. He was faithful to the word, faithful to the preaching of God's word. And uh, there came a point when uh, the church was annoyed that popularity was growing from Charles Simeon's preaching and people were coming to church. So they actually began to lock the doors of the church to keep people out. He, Charles Simeon went to the, the rector. They were able to say, guys, you need to keep the church doors open. This is not gospel influence. Come on. We need to keep the church doors open. Well, then the church said, all right, we're locking our pews. Back then, they had doors to the pews, and everybody who gave a lot sat to the front. No indication here, so nobody think like, ooh, people who sit in the front giving a lot. <laughs> Everybody's giving faithfully, but not here. But they had doors on the pews. They locked their doors. So people would stand, get this, people would stand in the aisles, and Charles Simeon built this weird balcony thing to hold people, but there was nobody in the pews when he would preach. But yet he did this. For 12 years until he won over the hearts of the congregation. And then they, they repented. And they, wel- they began welcoming him for the Sunday afternoon lecture, inviting him for that. 55 years. That's a long time in one place. Now the believers here in Philadelphia were enduring opposition from the Jewish community. And, and within Charles Simeon's church, there was opposition from within the church, the people who you're supposed to be getting along with. Well, the believers, the Jews particularly in Philadelphia, were feeling this of being locked out from the Jewish community. They, they were probably locked out of the synagogue. Then they got locked out of business transactions. Then they perhaps got locked out of social occasions, family occasions. The church didn't have the social standing or the means or the numbers to combat being locked out. That's why Jesus recognizes you're of little power. Jesus came to this church reminding them that their power was not to be found in their own personal, physical strength and abilities, but in their spiritual strength and opportunities. They had gospel power to achieve exponentially beyond their capacity as long as they trusted Jesus to advance his kingdom. Jesus comes to them and says, behold, look. He says it twice, look. But first, there's an open door before you. There's an open door before this church that he says, nobody can shut. See, he was giving them hope for the gospel to give them hope to spread the gospel. It's Jesus' desire for every church. Because look, the main point is this. Jesus advances his kingdom through the faithful obedience of his church. And, and we would maybe where faithful is uh, think faith-filled. A faith-filled, not just a dutiful obedience, but a joyful, faith-filled obedience. Jesus advances his kingdom. And he comes to them with a vision, as he's done in all the letters. He comes with a vision of who he is that's revealed in chapter 1. And he's so timely, he's so precise with the vision of who he is for the churches in order to comfort them and remind them who he is for their particular situation. In this situation, he, he holds the key to the door. First, he's the Holy One. There's no one like Jesus. No one. 
The word holy in scripture when we see it, when God is holy and Jesus is holy and his spirit is holy, it's completely other than who we are. We don't have a a conceptual comparison to make. Even though we try to make comparisons, there's no comparison. He's completely other than we are. He's Jesus. He's God. And he's also the true one. There's no one truer than Jesus. In a world that seeks to find truth from within and create a truth by which they live by, Jesus is the true truth. Francis Schaeffer said that back in the 1960s. We, we have a Savior who's the true truth. But he also holds the key of David. Now this comes from, uh, I think directly from a prophecy that was made in Isaiah chapter 22. We see that uh, the prophet says, In that day I will call, God is saying this through Isaiah, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And you shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Isaiah makes this prophecy to a king that would arise in Jerusalem, a king of Judah, a son of David. And Eliakim is a picture of what Jesus would be. But interestingly, the result of that key to the house is security. Putting that peg in a secure place to be an honor and a a security for people around him. Now, eventually... Uh, Judah continues to rebel. And in the next couple of verses, he says, I'm going to remove that peg. But Jesus is the one that comes and fulfills all of it because he's better than any, any king, that, any man king that's come. We needed a God-man king who has come. And now he reigns forever. Jesus let the church in Philadelphia know that his sovereign purposes have been fulfilled. Therefore, his people now can enjoy the security of his presence. Now let's think about the city in which these believers dwell. The city of Philadelphia was founded in in 140 BC, really as a base to Hellenize the world. Hellenization was uh, the effort to make everything Greek. Let's just make all the culture, the language, uh, the jokes, everything, it's going to be Greek. It was on the main highway between Rome and the Far East, and it was actually a mid, sort of a midway point. All of the roads in Asia went to Philadelphia. So it was, in many ways, to be a doorway into Roman culture, language, and life. It was a missionary city. People came there to find out things. But it was also situated near an active volcano. Now, we know that the the ground nearest a volcano is the most fertile and fruitful ground on the planet, but yet you're next to a volcano. There's some... Some things that can happen there, right? Well, the city was destroyed in 17 AD under the reign of Tiberius. Uh, He was generous to the city. He forgave their taxes for a few years. And in response, they said, hey, we're going to build a temple to you. We're actually going to rename our city Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. 
Now, living next to the volcano, I think we can understand this during hurricane season. Next, <laughs> living next to an active volcano made for a stressful life because they were always in the cone of uncertainty. So we're always looking at the cone. They were constantly then leaving the city and then returning to the city based on how the volcano was behaving. They're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. They're feeling rumblings. Uh, There were a few times where they would feel the aftershocks for years when when the volcano had spewed stuff. So look, when we think about Philadelphia, there was constant, as a missionary city, there was constant insecurity. There was, that, that provides tension, that pro, that's stressful. And Jesus comes to the believers and he promises, and these promises that he's making to them were meeting them in real time, everyday life. Because remember his promise to have a new name? You're under the banner of Nezo, a Neo-Caesarea, but you'll have my name, a new name. He's very pointed in his promises to let them know this is for you right now. And the church in Philadelphia, he says to them, look, behold, look, pay attention. Jesus is very intentional with the imagery that he uses to convey his love and his presence with his people. And he does that for us. We should always be looking for more opportunity to see Jesus, to understand his, perfect, uh, his perspective as he's looking at us and at our world. Jesus will give his people promises that reorder their understanding of their mission in the city in which they are. And Jesus is constantly giving his people a renewed spiritual vision and perspective for where he has a serving out the mission of his kingdom advancement. He wants us, he wants to use us to advance his kingdom. And he says, look, pay attention to what I'm doing. Pay attention to my perspective. It will help. He says, look, there's an open door. I think these probably refer to two, uh, two aspects of a door. The first would be a door of salvation. Remember in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's the door of salvation. And no one has the power to shut that door. No one. Whomever Jesus wants to bring in, He says, I open the door. Nobody can shut it. So no man, no person can shut that door. Jews here who are lying, we don't know what they're lying about, but they're lying uh, possibly to slander the Jewish, the Christian Jewish community. No man can shut the door. No demon of hell can shut the door. Satan himself cannot shut that door of salvation. This is also a door of mission. When the Apostle Paul talks about his evangelistic opportunities, he references a door of opportunity. Pray that there's a door that I can share the gospel. First uh, Corinthians 16, verse 9. <coughs> excuse me. For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Colossians 4, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open Open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Jesus wants the church in Philadelphia to recognize his authority over their salvation and his authority over their mission. He wants them to use, uh, he wants to use them rather to come through the open door to intimacy with God and then go and tell other people about it. 
That's what he does with us. It's the same. He welcomes us into his presence in salvation. And then he says, hey, go invite others. Go tell them what you have. And get them in on this too. The encouragement that Jesus gives the church is that they are little, have little power, but they, they have a strong faith. This is perhaps the smallest of the seven churches that Jesus addressed. Small churches have a hard time feeling they're making an impact. I feel that sometimes. I've asked the Lord over our existence as a church. Lord, what about this? What about that? But you know what? It's not about the, the physical abilities and strength. It's about what God does in the hearts of his people. We're not to compare ourselves to larger churches. So we have, naturally speaking, maybe little power. But yet, would we be known as a church to have a really strong faith in what the, in what the, the Savior does in all things. They have in their, in their little power, but strong faith, they have kept the word. That's huge. And may that be for us what we are known for. And they have also withstood pressure to conform. They've not denied Jesus when things got really, really tough. And Jesus talked about something that was very small uh, when he gave the parable of the mustard seed. But what was he describing in that? In Luke 13, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. What's being described? What is, why is that the kingdom? Have you ever held a mustard seed? It is tiny. In another place, Jesus said it's the smallest seed on the earth. It's so tiny. You put it in your fingernail, it just like a, looks like a little speck of dirt. But yet, it can grow into a tree that's strong enough for birds to come and make ne their nests in its branches. What is Jesus conveying about the kingdom? Jesus conveys that God does amazing things with his kingdom advancement. He grows things exponentially proportional to the investment. The tiny investment, the, 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 tiny, the, the fruit of what comes from that seed doesn't make sense. The seed should be bigger. But Jesus says the kingdom of God, see, it looks insignificant and nothing, but yet produces something that is strong and that others come in and enjoy. The birds of the air come and make their nests. Quite simply, the parable of the mustard seeds shows us that there's power packed in a small package, but more than that, God does the impossible. He does the impossible over and over and over again. And he also says to them, because I think the, the opposition that they're having from what Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan, those who are bringing this opposition will later come to their senses because God will have the last word. He has the last word. God brings the rebukes of his enemies back on their heads. And he uses the patient endurance of his people who are living by faith to shame the proud. Just by us looking at Jesus, living for Jesus, God gets the last word. And you know what the last word is? His love over us. 
Those will come and they will bow down before you and they will know that what? I have loved you. See, this helps us when we feel like we need to bolster our defenses and maybe um, defend ourselves in situations. I think there's, a, there's an appropriate response when, we, when righteousness is being condemned or faith is being condemned, there's, there's a righteous response to stand up and say, no, we, we, wait a minute. We're not going to condemn faith. We're not going... So we stand up for God in that way, but a lot of times there's so much of us that's mixed in that we, we want the last word. If I can just... That's why we play it over and over and over in our, again in our heads. We think in the situations that, that still are unresolved. We think if I can just have a moment to say this, then everything will be all right. Probably not. Because when we want the last word, we're robbing God of the opportunity to establish his last word. And what's his word? I love you. I love you. So we trust him. With conflict, but look at what God does. This is what He does. This is part of the impossible that He does because we can think, how can how can God's last word ever help me in this situation or communicate what I believe is happening? Here's how God does the impossible in First Corinthians 1, 27, 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know what this tells us about us? We're nothing. We're weak. We're low. He he takes what we cast off, he takes what the world casts off and he comes and redeems it and uses it to display his glory in such ways that it quiets the proud. It makes them hush up. What I, I, I like about this image about those who are of the synagogue of Satan coming and bowing down. And really, it's not a bowing down to worship the, the church. It's a bowing down to worship God. Remember, Oh, God has loved you. I need to worship God for that. But what it reminds us of is that Satan's lies are thrown down at our feet as we reign with Christ. His lies come and are nothing because God has the last word in his greatest, our greatest weapon is the faithful love of Jesus toward us that's ongoing, ever increasing and new every morning. The expression of his mercy and his steadfast love. That's our greatest weapon. Now, what is the exhortation? What's the church need to pay attention to? Uh, Like Smyrna, this church has no rebuke. Jesus says, I know your works. But I wish you had done this. I think you need to work on this. No rebuke here. So it tells us that Jesus is proud of this little church. He's proud of this church. And he wants to preserve his church in the hour of trial. Now, verse 10. Let's get a little, uh, here's some. Cool eschatology for us. We've been wanting that. Oh, eschatology study of the end times. Sorry, I threw out a 
theological word on you. Verse 10, look at that. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. There are several biblical scholars and pastors uh, that will see in this verse the promise of a rapture before the ultimate great tribulation that we have um, prophesied later on in this book. I understand the reasoning. Uh, mainly since because the hour of trial is to come on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. It's a global concept. So many biblical scholars and pastors will say, well, that has to point to the last great tribulation. So this is proof, uh, and this is God, Jesus saying there's going to be a rapture of the church. Several other scholars and pastors, um, even some who defend a pre-tribulation rapture, see this as a promise to Jesus not to, not to preserve his people by their escape of suffering, but to preserve their faith within suffering. I do, I do agree with that perspective on this, that this is, this is God, this is Jesus telling his church, I'm going to keep you during the, the hour of trial. And I'm going to keep you. Remember how he prayed for Peter? The enemy has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for your faith. See, we're always, God, can you deliver us from suffering? Can you please do that? He doesn't promise the deliverance from suffering. He promises to keep our faith during the suffering. Uh, the preservation seems to be more of protecting the church from apostasy rather than suffering. And it's, it comes into line with his prayer for all of his disciples in all ages that he, that's recorded in John 17. Remember, he's praying to the Father. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is a, I'm keeping you. I'm preserving you through the trial. Now, the church is to hold fast to the gospel like the other churches have been exhorted to do. No matter what happens, keep the gospel. Keep the word. Just as you have been keeping it, continue to keep it. But then Jesus gives them the promise of his impending return. I am coming soon. This is the greatest help to all believers in all ages, every generation. He is coming soon. Today, he hasn't come back yet, but it's, he's sooner coming back, right? Amen. And tomorrow, if he hasn't come back, it'll be sooner. We're sooner. We're getting closer. No matter when it is, we're getting closer. And, and Jesus does know when he's coming back. There's only earth that he didn't know. So Jesus isn't up there going, Father, now? I mean, things are really bad. Have you watched the news? Russia and Ukraine? Now? No, not now. No, Jesus is one with the Father. He's back to his preexistent state in glory with the Father. So he knows. He knows when he's coming back. But what we get to do in our yearning for that, is loose ourselves from all the stuff that captures our attention on this earth and say, you know what? This zip code, it's not my zip code. It's not my address. It's my temporary home. My address is in heaven. So Jesus, please come back. You know, I tell uh, my classes over at Northlake because we go through uh, Mark and we talk about 
end times stuff in Mark 13, and I'll tell them, and, and it pops up in the conversation in other places, that when I was in high school, I, I said, Lord, please don't come back until, this was a real prayer, don't come back until I get married and have kids. Because I wanted the experience that marriage brings. Growing up as a Christian in high school, I'm like, all right, Lord, save myself from marriage, but I'd really like to enjoy that in marriage. So, but what I didn't understand was I was limiting the experience in heaven. The experience of heaven is not going to be in any, we're not going to lose something that we enjoy here. Remember how the mustard seed, the kingdom grows, with exponential proportion to the growth? Our experience in heaven is going to, the, the state that we are living in is going to far exceed any delight that we have on this earth that we can only experience episodically, here and there. Heaven is going to be an internal existing with God that is better than any pleasure we have on this earth. So that's why we say, Oh, Jesus, come soon, please. But when, he, when he's delaying, it also means the mission is still before us. Tell somebody about him. Love somebody into the kingdom. That's, that's what we remind ourselves of. God, you're not here today, and I don't want to focus so much on my, my suffering and my plight and how I want to tell somebody off just to make myself feel better, get the last word in. That's not the mission. Jesus, keep us on mission. That's what he's telling the church. That's the open door that he's giving them, the door of opportunity. And then he says something quite profound that I cannot find in my Bible right now. Ah. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That's profound and it's powerful. It's a powerful exhortation. See, there is a crown, I believe, that we will get in heaven. And we will, it's that wreath crown that, that Paul talks about, James talks about. And it's here in the scriptures in Revelation as well. But there's also a crown that we wear today as believers. There's a crown that we wear as Christians in our lives. And two very helpful scripture references bring this to our awareness. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Seated us with him. That's on the throne with Jesus. That's not, you know, you don't have Jesus on the throne, and there's a bunch of benches that go behind him. That's seated on the throne with Jesus. And I have been helped by my friend Carter Featherston to be able to understand what life is to be like in the experience of being on his throne with him. And Carter, in his book, God knows your story. 
He was supposed to be here today. I was going to point him out and embarrass him, but he's not here. So I just embarrassed him because he told me he was going to be here. Look at Romans 5, verse 17. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And looking at these a few weeks ago, looking at this first few weeks ago, I, it was one of those moments that those words just got there. I, th- God, you, you didn't have those before. But yet we read scripture, and that's what I love about it's alive. So every time we read it, we, we see deeper things and we have truths to hold on to. But church, listen to this. We have a crown of power and authority that we live in. We are to reign in life with Christ. That's not a future reign. That's right now. That's right now. We have the power of Christ in this life through his resurrection. We have the authority of Christ in this life because of his crown that he won and he shares with us. So what's that look like? We oftentimes allow others to seize our crown. We allow the lies about our identity in Christ to seize our crown, to take it off momentarily. And the devil himself, we we allow Satan to seize our crown when we listen to his lies about our worth, when we listen to his lies about our security, when we listen to his lies about our healing, when we listen to his lies about God's forgiveness over us, when we listen to his lies about the hope that we have in Christ. He seizes our crown and tries to whip us with it. But yet, and it's his greatest tactic to keep us convinced of our shame and to doubt God's forgiveness. The devil's greatest tactic. But thankfully, he just seizes our crown. He can't take it away. He can't take it away, and he can't hide it, and he can't keep it. So what is, what's Paul, oh, sorry, what, what's the, uh, Jesus telling the church? Keep your crown on your head. Keep your crown on on your head. Nobody can take it off because just like the door that he opens and nobody can shut, when he puts the crown on, it stays. So listen, husbands and wives, parents and children, we have to be careful how we speak to one another because we will also seize, try to seize each other's crown. When we speak demeaningly, when we are proud, when we come with a, a superiority to situations, when we are not humble, when we are not patiently enduring with one another, we are susceptible. Trying to lock somebody out, trying to convince the crown's not there, using scripture weirdly for our own advantage. No. And this, this is not licensed to be a jerk. This is licensed to say, I, I am now, I'm under I'm under Jesus' crown. His is on my head. And that, that's different, right? We, it's not a crown we have achieved. It's not a crown that we have manufactured. He's won it for us, so we are stewards of his power and his authority. But we have power over our thoughts. We have power over the images that the enemy keeps on bringing back over and over and over again. We have power over those. And he wants us to walk in that power and in that authority. 
Don't give away your authority that's in Christ. You are worthy to be seated with him. Folks, I, I, I have functioned under a deficient view of my identity in Christ for so long. And I am so thankful for the Lord bringing this to me in the past few months. He has brought this awareness and it's changed everything. Everything. It's changed everything. We have the crown of Christ that we are to steward well. But keep it on. Keep your crown on. And then Jesus gives his promises to the church. And the first promise is that they would be pillars in the temple. There were so many temples in Philadelphia that it was nicknamed Little Athens. And a way to honor those who had left a legacy in the city was to name a pillar in a temple after that person. Jesus promised this small, this, this weak, this insecure, this insignificant church by church and world standards that they would be honored for their spiritual legacy and he will take their names and inscribe them on the pillar of God's temple. How cool is that? And you know what? There's another way you can think about this pillar. Uh, even when, today, when, when you see ruins of ancient cities, what's mostly standing? The pillars from the temples. So there's a steadfastness to the work that God does. And he calls us to be his temple. And he builds us and he inscribes his name on us. So come trial come storm, come opposition, come accusation, come whatever the, the devil himself throws at us, we stand, we are seated secure in Christ. We will remain because of his good work on us, not because we figured something out. So that's why we simply glory in the word. We glory in Jesus. And then he gives his name. Look at what Jesus does. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. Oh, and that's a beautiful picture. In chapter 21, comes just down from heaven. It's just so cool. And he says, my own new name. What does this tell us? Why does God care so much about us knowing that we're, we're labeled by his name? Well, because we let labels seize our crown. We let the devil's label over us of unworthy, of hopeless, of unforgiven. We, we let that seize our crown. So remember, this is a new city. This is the new city of Caesar. Jesus says that's puny compared to the city of God, who we are. But this is telling us that God is proud of us as his children. He wants to be known by us. He wants to use us to be made known. He's using us to declare his name. He's proud of his family line. He's proud to have us in his city, in his presence, with the shining light of his glory that warms our face. He is proud to have us have the name of Christ as Christians. Let us steward it well. So that means in conclusion, I'm telling myself this. <laughs> Stop underestimating the power of God. I underestimate it too much. And so it affects my prayers. I don't pray as boldly as I should. I pray with these weird prayers that uh, have these clauses in it that help me 
protect my own emotions if God says no. Rather than just trust a God who is living and he's active and he's spreading his kingdom and he wants us to participate in that. So can that embolden our prayers too? Look, if Jesus were here physically and he said to us, I'm proud of you. That'd make a difference, right? Well, he's saying that. He's saying, I'm proud of you. Keep going. Keep the word. Don't conform under the pressure. And you will have legacy. So I ask for that legacy for our church. I ask for a faithful legacy all the time. God, give us a faithful legacy that we love the word. We love Jesus with everything we are. And then we love people to see them, see them. We, we love them into the, the, the healing and freedom that Jesus wants every believer to have. We want that. The door of opportunity is open to us, Christ Community Church. It's open to us. Let's be faithful with it. Let's pray. Lord, you're just, you're, you're just a good God. And it amazes us that you would have us participate in you advancing your glory on this earth. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving. Thank you for your love that continues to pour over us. We ask, God, that we would we would be experiencing the healing and the freedom that you desire for us to have. And God, we ask that you would please use us as a lamppost in a dark and weary and dying world so they will know your love of us, but so they can know your love themselves. Do it, God. Do it. So, Lord, we, we commend our lives to you. We, we give our lives to you and say, Lord, here we are. Use us. Because it looks like we have no power in, in and of ourselves in us collectively, but God, do something exponentially powerful because of our obedience and our faithfulness to you. We love you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's be reminded. We have a door of opportunity, and as we remind ourselves of the commission, this is why. Jesus saying to us, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. See you in a little while at the Milton Burger Home.